We are back in the book of Romans, and uh, we are finally getting to the good news, right? So if you have been with us every week for the last, you know, as long as we've been in Romans, you have probably realized, man, we have been talking about sin and wrath and judgment for quite a while, Pastor Rick. Well, guess what? Today we finally get to verse 21, eventually, which is the good news. And that is the right description of it, because the word gospel literally means Good news. It's just an old term word for good news. The euangelion. When we call ourselves evangelicals or we talk about evangelism, the passing on of the evangelion, uh, what we're saying is we are people of the good news. People of the message. Uh, We looked at how sinful we are as human beings since the fall. That the world is broken. We looked at how nothing in this world can fix us. Nothing in this world can save us. Not the law, not morality, not a ceremony or a right or our conscience, nothing. What it's going to take, what it took, is something outside of this world. What if if God reached down into this world? Would that be enough? And God, who specializes in the impossible, does exactly that. He does the miraculous. In the whole of Jesus' life, his virgin birth, the whole of his birth, the whole of his Christmas story, his virgin birth, a star leading the Magi there, the angels appearing to the shepherds, all of it speaks of the miraculous, of God's reaching down into our world to redeem us and save us. Look with me at Romans 9, Romans chapter 3, sorry, I mean Romans 3, 9 through 26. Romans 3, 9 through 26. We're going to look a little bit more again, a little more of a summary of uh, our sinful nature and human depravity and the inability of the law to save us. And then we finally, the light breaks in in verse 21. We read this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood 
to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord add his blessing to the reading and study and preaching and application of his word this morning. Um, We have the righteousness of God to save us. We have the righteousness of God to save us. Here's where we're going this morning, verses 9 through 18. Sin affects every person and every area of our lives. One more emphasis on the nature of sin. Uh, 19 to 20, the law makes us more aware of our sinfulness. Doesn't fix our sinfulness, it only makes us more aware of it. And then 21 to 26, which we'll begin to touch on. We'll come back to that, I think, in the new year. We'll take a break for Christmas in the next few weeks. But uh, the righteousness of God comes to us through Jesus Christ. So, first, what we see here, again, this one last section on the pervasiveness of sin. Uh, he says, are we any better off? Actually, the ESV adds the word Jews because that's assumed here. Paul himself is Jewish. And the answer is not in terms of salvation. Yes, there is a blessing. We looked at that last week. In being Jewish, there are the very words of God. But in terms of salvation, all are under sin. And then Paul, what Paul does next is something that was common among rabbis. And that is he gives a sort of litany of Old Testament quotes. Um, This is something called a string of pearls, where you would take a bunch of Old Testament quotes, Hebrew scriptures, the scriptures that they would have known, and put them together to make an argument. And that's sort of what he does next. He starts with the broadest of quotes. No one is righteous. Not even one person. No one understands God. So even our minds are in rebellion against God. Nobody seeks God. All, everyone, has turned away from him, are worthless in our sin, and not a single person does good, truly and really and continually. But then he sort of focuses, on, focuses in on some body parts. All the quotes refer to what we do with our speech, our throats, our tongues, our lips, our mouth. We use our speech to sin against one another and against God. And the next ones are really all about our feet, the paths that we walk in, the way in which we go. Our actions, along with our speech, are used in sin. And he ends those list of quotes by saying, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Without help from on high, we are dead, we are lost. We are blind. Friends, the the doctrine of sin matters. As I said before, it is probably the most evident of all Christian doctrine. Um, It doesn't really take much to prove to someone that we're sinners. I mean, it's pretty obvious when you look at the world. But the truth of the matter is, it's actually ultimately good news. And I'll explain why. Um, The world is broken by sin. This is not the way it is supposed to be. Something is wrong. We look at the world and say, this is, this is off. Which means it can get better. It can change. Uh, the, many other views, for example, the Eastern view, um, Confucianism, Buddhism, and so forth, uh, don't look at it this way. They look at it the yin and the yang. 
The, the, the chaos and order, good and evil, are in this continual balance. Right? There's just this constant cycle, one and the other. And really the best we can do is simply come to a place in which we are at peace with it. We reach a state of nirvana in which we say, this is good. We need both. We need good and we need evil. If that's true, what that means is this is here to stay. All of the suffering and war, the pandemics we see, the child abuse and genocide, it's all here and it's not going anywhere. It's simply the balance of the universe. Or if you take, say, no, I'm not really much into the Eastern view. I, I think this is simply what matter does. Right? Again, you take God out of the picture. There is no spiritual, sort of a materialistic view. This is exactly what you would expect, the survival of the fittest. The, the strong dominate the weak. The world is filled with evil, and that's the way we progress. Something has to die, and something else has to succeed in order for us to progress forward. Uh, Nietzsche was big on this view. By the way, a lot of people say, well, why mention Nietzsche? Nobody really knows Nietzsche nowadays. Actually, most people don't know Nietzsche and his works, but the reality is most sort of philosophers or most uh, cultural sort of analysts would say that Nietzsche is one of the most influential philosophers of our culture today, even if people don't know the name. And Nietzsche believed we should sort of remove Christianity and look at the world in this way. This is how we progress. One historian described Nietzsche. Nietzsche admired the Greeks not despite but because of their cruelty. He was a professor. Large numbers of students by the end of his tenure as a professor had been shocked into abandoning his classes. They couldn't take it anymore. Nietzsche valued the ancients for the pleasure they had taken in inflicting suffering. It's a necessary form to progress human beings. This is exactly what you would expect from apes simply competing with one another. Others, more theologically speaking, see God as the creator of evil. Sometimes Islam speaks in this way, not always. If that's true, that means there's something sort of malevolent in him, in the creator of this universe. And if that's true, even if he gets rid of evil, who's to say he wouldn't bring it back again someday? But if biblical Christianity is right, that the world is not supposed to be this way, there's something broken, there's something not right, that means it can be fixed. That means that there can be a day in which all of the evil and suffering and sinfulness that we experience every day could be gone and we could experience a world without it. But as he's making the point here, friends, sin is pervasive. Everyone here has seen what sin does. (laughs) Everyone here, without exception, right? All you have to do again is turn on the news. I grew up, um, I'm 43, so I grew up with apartheid. I remember apartheid. Um, A small group of whites in South Africa sought to basically use their power to um, eliminate and oppress all the blacks in South Africa. 9-11, most of us remember exactly what we were doing in 9-11, where jihadist terrorists thought it was worthwhile to die in suicide if they could use it to kill thousands of people. Just as of recently, we've seen the riots whether in the streets of Minneapolis or on Capitol Hill. Sin is obvious. More than that, though, we don't have to turn on the news. We've personally witnessed sin. We've had people sin against us. I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, counseled, who have been abused as a kid. 
You've experienced betrayal or apathy, right? People who just don't care. We don't even have to go that far, though, friends. All we have to do is look at our own heart. And we know that sin is real. We've given in to temptation. We've done things that we are ashamed of. We feel guilty about. We have regrets. Time that we've lost and we'll never get back. We do it with our mouths. We do it with our actions. With our mouths, we lie. We gossip. We slander. We use angry words. We say things to our spouse that we can't take back. We yell at our kids in a way that hurts them for years. We say things that are mean, that are nasty, that are hurtful. Uh, You know, when you look back at your teenage years, and some of you guys are teenagers, but you say something truly hurtful to a teenager, whether that's an adult saying it or another teenager, right? They'll never forget it. You know, someone calls a, a teenage girl ugly. She'll be 90 years old and remember that still. We are so dangerous with our words. The poison of asps. Our actions, our feet have led us into trouble. Led us down a wrong path. Led us into evil. In the Proverbs it talks about turning to the right or to the left or staying on the path of wisdom. We reject God or we ignore God. There is no fear of him. That's our state outside of Christ. 19 to 20, he reminds us again that the law makes us more aware of our sinfulness. The law makes us more aware of our sinfulness. It can't fix our sin problem, but it can make us more and more aware of it. He said this again and again, but he makes it clear once again, talking about the law, which is probably the moral aspects of the Torah, the Ten Commandments and other ceremonial laws. And it says, what it speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law. That whole litany of quotes that he just gave are all quotes from the law and the prophets. And at the end of it, what do you say? What does the law itself say about us? That every mouth is now stopped and everyone is held accountable, the whole world, including the Gentiles who don't have the law but have a conscience that works as a law to them. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. Justified is a legal term. Um, It means literally to declare righteous, not to become righteous, but declare righteous. As if in a court of law you are said to be guilty or not guilty. To be justified means you are not guilty. And he's saying that declaration, that legal declaration, will never be not guilty by simply trying to obey the law. All the law does is bring a knowledge of sin. It makes our sin all the more clear to us. We're rebels in our heart since the Garden of Eden. We know something is wrong. (laughs) We know it's wrong to steal. We have the clear command not to steal. And yet we still steal. We still break the law. Uh, Think of a football game. And I know this is, you know, football is not moral in a sense. But the rules are pretty clear, right? Everyone, you know, every player knows the rules. Every coach knows the rules. And yet how many penalties are called every single game, right? Has there ever even been a football game, professional football game, in which a penalty wasn't called? I don't know. How many people still try to push the rules and cheat, um, including our amazing coach at, in New England, right? So we break the law. The laws of the land, they're clear. The laws of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts are clear. How many fines are given out for speeding? I think it's actually worked into part of the budget, the expected money that will be received from fines. How many jails and prisons are full? 
In fact, sometimes in our rebel heart, we hear a rule and we intentionally want to break it because we heard it. Right? Oh, the sign said no fishing. You know what I want to do now? Get my fishing rod and throw, throw a line in and see what's in those waters. And maybe some human rules need to be broken. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying there's a rebel heart to us. And what the law has done has made us see more clearly. By the way, one of our jobs as Christians is to simply help others see this. To, to see their need of a Savior. And as I said, it doesn't usually take much. People say, well, I, you know, I think I'm a good person. Okay, have you ever lied? Have you ever been so angry and hateful of another person? Have you ever looked with lust upon another? Then you're a lawbreaker. And you need a Savior just like me. Legalism, by the way, legalism has two definitions, just so you know. One of them means to add to the law. So like the fence laws of the rabbis. But we see this again. Uh, I mentioned last week fundamentalism. Uh, You can't dance. You can't gamble. You can't go to Disney World, right? None of that's in the Bible. (laughs) Um, But it's a way of sort of trying to protect people from breaking the real actual laws by adding to the law. And there's a great danger in that form of legalism. But the other form, the other sort of definition of legalism is to believe that you are saved by obeying the law. Which is basically the same as any religion in this world teaches. And I think, friends, this is sort of the default of most people, particularly, I think, here in the United States. If I were to talk to somebody on the street who's not a believer, and I said, are you going to heaven? They'd probably say, yeah, I think so. And if I said why, they would say, because I've been a good person. Our default is to say, I obeyed the law to some degree. How good do you have to be? How much do you have to obey? Eh, It depends. (laughs) It's sort of graded on a scale. Um, as long as I'm really better than the people around me, right? So if, I'm, if I look at my sort of circle of friends, my coworkers, my neighbors, and I'm sort of a step above them, then I'm all set. As long as I'm not below them. That's sort of the mentality. There's an old uh, uh, joke or story. It's gone around for a long time. You, pr- you may have heard it before. But there's two guys who are in the woods. And they're deep into the woods. And all of a sudden, this grizzly bear comes out at them. And it's staring them down. And one of the two men pulls out a pair of sneakers out of his backpack. And he slowly and carefully kneels down and he begins to put the sneakers on. And the other man says, are you crazy? There is no way you can outrun that bear. And the man says, I don't have to outrun the bear. I just have to outrun you. I just have to be better than my next door neighbor. I just have to be better than those around me. And God surely won't judge me. If I'm better than most, I'll be all set. Friends, understand that Jesus never left that option open to us. You look at Jesus' own life. He never once said, simply obey the law and you'll get to heaven. In fact, he claimed to be the eternal son of God in the flesh who has come as a ransom for sinners who on the cross will pay our debt. What do you do with that? You could say that Jesus is simply wrong. He's lying. You know, he thought something was true and it's not true. He's just telling something false. You could say he's crazy. And there are a lot of people who claim to be God, right? So he's just one of them. He's a crazy person. Or he is who he says he is. He's Lord. In which case, we seek to repent and believe in him. But there is no option of taking Jesus and turning him into this moral teacher who just wanted us to be good and nice to people. (laughs) 
This is, of course, C.S. Lewis's, if you haven't heard this before, his famous argument, liar, lunatic, or Lord. This is what he said. C.S. Lewis said, you can shut him, meaning Jesus, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. Therefore, we are left with three logical options. He is either God or a liar or a lunatic. The law can't save us, and that's the whole of Jesus' message. We need a Savior to come from heaven. John Stott said, For we have no merit to plead and no excuse to make. We too stand before God speechless and condemned. Only then shall we be ready to hear the great but now of verse 21. The righteousness of God comes to us through Jesus Christ. 21 to 26. Leon Morris said this is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. The biggest adversative, the biggest but now in the Bible. Finally, in verse 21, if you've been following through Romans, the good news breaks through. But now, something has changed from three chapters, two and a half chapters, of talking about our desperate state and this diagnosis of the wrath of God on our sin. But now, the righteousness of God is made known. Apart, apart from law, no one's made righteous by the law. He says, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, no doubt, if you read the Old Testament, we talked about this, read the Torah, read the prophets, read the Psalms, it's constantly bearing witness to this. Read in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, we have what's called the Proto-Euangelion, which is that the seed of the woman, woman, Eve, is what brings victory, ultimately, not our righteousness. We have the whole sacrificial system, the lamb of God, the goat, uh, the scapegoat of Yom Kippur, uh, the lamb of Passover. We have Psalm 22 talking about the rejected Messiah. Isaiah 53, of course, by his wounds we are healed. Malachi 4 says, wait for the messenger who prepares the way. The law and the prophets all over the place prepare the way for this. But the law and the prophets don't bring the righteousness. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no distinction, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But all are justified. All those who have faith are justified by grace as a gift. It comes to us as a gift. Through the redemption, that was a term used in the marketplace. If you wanted to free a slave, an indentured servant, you would pay a certain amount of money and you would redeem him or her through the redemption that comes in Jesus Christ. We're going to come back to that after Christmas, as I said, because there's a lot to say in that paragraph. Uh, But just notice here, friends, that Jesus makes all the difference. He makes all the difference. Uh, by the way, just think about Jesus, right? The most recognizable name in the world, by far. Not even close, right? No one, I mean, as I said, there are, we talked about this in our mission sermon series there, that there are people in the 1040 window who have never heard the name of Jesus, and we've got to reach them for sure. But there is no other name even close to as recognizable as the name Jesus 
Christ. Uh, Even today, you can't watch a movie or almost any TV show without hearing his name. Now, oftentimes it's going to be used as a curse, but even think about how strange that is. Right, you'll be sitting there watching some action movie, some car chase, and, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, one guy will say, Jesus Christ. just brings him into the conversation. And again, again, I know it's used as a sort of curse, but how strange that is that we cannot keep from mentioning his name constantly in almost any context. Our whole calendar is shaped by it. Our holidays. What is Christmas? Even someone who's not a believer, not a Christian, maybe even is part of a different religion who still recognizes Christmas will know Christmas marks his birth. What is Easter? Easter celebrates his resurrection. Advent, we're in the first week of Advent, is the four weeks leading up to Christmas. Lent begins the time before leading up to Easter. We still mark our years by his name. Uh, by his birth. So anything that happened before his birth is said to be B.C., before Christ. And anything that happens after him is said to be A.D., which is after death, right? No, not after death, because then you'd have this gap of 33 years, right? It's Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord, after the Lord has come into our world even I know academics now use, try to use CE and BCE, uh, the common era and before the common era, but they still mark it when? At the birth of Christ, at the same date. All of history sees at the center one man, Jesus. They say if you can go almost anywhere in all of Western civilization throughout Europe and see the ghost of Christianity in its cathedrals, in its history, in its buildings, in its art, All because Jesus Christ has come into our world. Born of a virgin in the shepherding fields of Bethlehem. The righteousness of God has been revealed. He talks about here, and we'll touch again, we'll touch more on this, I think, in the new year, but his forbearance of former sins. Of course, God saved faithful people, faithful Jews, and other Gentiles who trusted in the grace of God and in his sacrificial system. But they still needed the Savior to come. Instead, what God did is, with great forbearance, bore with their sins until his judgment fell on Jesus. There is no salvation apart from him. But friends, you can be forgiven. Saved from sin declared righteous not guilty think about that right so there's no higher court than God okay so if you are in the United States if you are declared to be not guilty by the Supreme Court uh, there's no one else you go to after that You're, you're pretty much free right if God, the creator of everything, and who everything that exists is contingent upon him, if he declares you not guilty, justified from your sin, there is no one or nothing <laughs> that can then accuse you. There's no higher appeal to authority than him. And if he looks upon you who have faith in Jesus and says, this is my son, this is my daughter, he or she is not guilty, They belong to me now. There is no higher accusation. As it says later on in Romans, though the whole world, though the whole universe would want to declare us guilty, if God declares us not guilty, that's the final authority.
in order for him to die for us, to die for me, he needed to be human. In order for him to die for all of us, he needed to be God. And Jesus, both God and man, has come to us. Friends, the truth is no one has changed lives like Jesus. Again, not even close. (laughs) Not even close. Wretches turned into saints. And friends, I don't know where everyone is here or maybe even watching online. If you're someone who has recognized the depth of your own sin and you realize you're under the wrath of God and his judgment, look to Jesus as your Savior. He welcomes you to himself. He calls us to faith. Faith is like allegiance, right? It's a very real thing. Allegiance is a very real thing. If somebody lives in the United States, but their allegiance is to an enemy of the United States, we try them for treason, and capital punishment still exists for them. Where is your allegiance? Is it to this world, or is it to Jesus? Have you put your faith and your trust in him? We have the righteousness of God to save us. This is the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, the best message you could ever hear. But now, a righteousness from God is revealed. What we could not do for ourselves, God does for us. You may have heard of the Roman road. It's a typical form of evangelism that's used often. It's a good one. And basically all the quotes come from Romans. It's a way of sharing the gospel with someone. But the very first quote from the Roman road comes from our passage, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what chapters 1 through 3 is telling us. And in 21, but are justified freely by the grace of Christ and the redemption that comes through Jesus. When you watch the news and you see sin, when you think back at your own life and think of those who have sinned against you, when you look at your own heart and realize the sin you yourself have committed, but now, Jesus. It's Christmas season. The world's a dark place. A lot of problems we're facing right now but now Jesus has come for us friends as we together as a church experience this Christmas season we have the righteousness of God to save us we have his amazing grace would you pray with me gracious God thank you for the your scripture your word which reveals to us with clarity the gospel That yet though we were sinners, Christ died for us. That you have purchased us through your death, Lord Jesus, and in the resurrection have assured for us eternal life. Lord, remind us again and afresh, remind our hearts again and again of the joy of the gospel. And let this year's celebration of Christmas be all the more richer and deeper and more joyful than any we've experienced as we remember that into the darkness has come the light of Christ, that the righteousness of God has been revealed, that amazing grace has come to us and saves wretches like me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.